Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Please open up your Bible to Psalm 111. Psalm 111. Uh, We do not know for certain who wrote Psalm 111. I'll just refer to him as the psalmist, and we don't know the circumstances in which the psalm was written, but after having studied it this past week, um, I'm persuaded that Psalm 111 is possibly one of the greatest psalms that many of us are not very familiar with. And I, I think you'll see it's a very fitting psalm for us to consider before we come to the Lord's table and before we enter into Thanksgiving week. I'm going to go ahead and give you my my outline for Psalm 11 before I read the text, and so you can listen um, for for these as I read to you. But we're going to consider Psalm 111 under three headings, and these three headings are, are questions. First, how should we give thanks to the Lord? Second, why should we give thanks to the Lord? And that's where most of the psalm is focused. Why should we give thanks to the Lord? But then third, how are we to live tomorrow? In light of all of this, how are we to live tomorrow in light of all that the Lord has done and is doing? And so listen for the answers to those three questions as I read Psalm 111. Hear now God's holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible, life-giving word. Psalm 111. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright in the congregation. Great are the works of the Lord. Study by all who delight in them. Full of splendor and majesty is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. He has shown his people the power of his works in giving them the inheritance of the nations. The works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. He sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. This is the word of the Lord. And it's absolutely true. And it's given to us in love for our good. And so as I said earlier, we're going to look at it under three headings. How should we give thanks to the Lord? Why should we give thanks to the Lord? And how are we to live tomorrow in light of all of this? And all that the Lord, in light of all the Lord has done and is doing. So first, how should we give thanks to the Lord? Let's look at verse 1. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright, in the congregation. So how should we give thanks to the Lord? Well, the first answer to that question is we should give thanks to the Lord along with God's people in worship. Right? That, that opening phrase, praise the Lord, is literally in Hebrew the word hallelujah. Hallelujah, praise the Lord. That's how Psalm 111 begins. And notice what the psalmist says. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright in the congregation. So the psalmist declares that he himself will give thanks to the Lord personally, individually, but then he goes further and declares that he will give thanks to the Lord in the company of the upright, in the congregation. That is, he will give thanks to the Lord personally and publicly 
in the company of the congregation, along with the people of God who were gathered for worship in the sanctuary. See, the psalmist places himself among the people of God, with the people of God. But he's not merely a, a lone, lone ranger believer. Rather, he's praising and worshiping the Lord with God's people in the congregation. That's a priority for him. And I think that today we need to not run past this too quickly because for, for far too many who profess faith in Christ end up viewing the church as optional. Viewing Lord's Day worship with God's people is optional. However, you can search the scriptures. You look throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. There's, there's no category of believer who's, who's not among and with the rest of the people of God in the company of the upright, in the congregation. You know, week by week, Lord's Day by Lord's Day. And for some reason, they can't be there. They long to be there. Their hearts yearn to be there. So how should we give thanks to the Lord? Well, we should give thanks to the Lord along with God's people in worship. The second answer to that question is that we should give thanks to the Lord with our whole heart. Look again at verse 1. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. That Hebrew word translated whole means everything, total, all. So do you understand what the psalmist is saying? I will give thanks to the Lord wholeheartedly, sincerely, deeply, you know, with all that I am. And Paul says something similar in, in Ephesians chapter 5. And I, I read and prayed through those verses earlier. But in Ephesians 5, 19 and 20, Paul says, Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to, the God, to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So I, I don't know what, what your heart is like tonight. Uh, in a room this size, lots of people, hundreds of people, you can imagine we have, our, you know, there are our hearts there in many different places. I can only imagine how, uh, how difficult this year has been for many of us because, you know, in a room this size, every year is difficult for some people when you look at a group like this. But regardless of how hard things have been, Paul says that we, that you, can and should give thanks always and for everything. You see what he says? Always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so I want to urge you to, to spend some time this week recalling your abundant blessings from God in Christ. Spend some time this week reflecting on his loving care and his kind provision for you giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So how should we worship the Lord? Along with his people in worship and with our whole hearts. The late pastor James Montgomery Boyce said, what is truly surprising is that among those who do know God, who have been introduced to him through Jesus Christ, there is so much half-hearted praise and casual devotion. It's surprising because if God is known at all, he must be known as one who is utterly worthy of our very highest praise. So let's do away with half-hearted worship. 
Instead, let's determine to praise God with all our hearts as the psalmist does. So, so what is the condition of your heart? What's the condition of your heart tonight? What, what's the condition of your heart mo- most Sunday mornings? Do you worship the Lord wholeheartedly, sincerely, deeply, with all that you are? I mean, how do you even begin to evaluate your heart and your praise and your worship, your thanksgiving to the Lord? I don't think the answer is found in whether or not you feel you do a good job of working yourself up into some you know, emotionally frenzied experience on a Sunday morning. And in our church, that's probably not your normal situation anyway. But I don't think that's how you evaluate it. I think the answer is much simpler than that. But it's also more challenging. See, wholehearted worship and praise, it... It, it begins before you, you enter this sanctuary. I mean, it, it begins, I mean, it begins before that alarm clock goes off on Sunday morning. You see, the best way to prepare to enter this sanctuary and worship the Lord wholeheartedly is, I mean, is, is, is to be, prepare your mind and your heart. Is to be looking ahead. Look ahead and see, see what the sermon text is. Go ahead and read it. Look at it. I mean, even, you know, go to on the website, click on live stream and look ahead. Many of you know this. We, we post the, the, the order of worship already in advance and look and see. Look and see what, what hymns and what songs we're going to be singing. You'll know, get plenty of rest on Saturday night. You know, leave, leave your house with plenty of time to, to get here without being rushed. Okay, how about this one? Sit closer. Okay, sit, sit closer. Listen, parents, parents, it helps. It, it helps your children. It helps your children focus. It helps you focus. Engage your heart. Be less distracted. All of this assists you in getting into a worshipful frame of mind. See, simply put, wholehearted worship as opposed to half-hearted, distracted, going through the motions, worship service attendance, wholehearted worship begins with making Sunday a priority. And so how should we give thanks to the Lord? We should give thanks to the Lord along with God's people and with our whole hearts. The second question is, well, why? Why? Why do this? Why should we give thanks to the Lord? Well, the simple answer is because of who God is and because of all he does. You see, your God is your creator and your provider and your redeemer. And we're going to see these themes, God as creator, provider, and redeemer, and or we're reminded of his works of creation, providence, and redemption throughout the the bulk of the rest of this psalm. We see this in in verses 2 to verse verse 9. And so look first at verses 2 and 3. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Full of splendor and majesty is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. And so here the psalmist speaks of God's works generally. And now he's going to get into specifics, but here he looks at God's works generally. 
God's works of creation and providence and redemption, and, then, and he assesses them, he evaluates them, and, and he declares they're great. They're full of splendor, full of splendor and majesty. That God's great works are full of splendor and majesty. And so why should we give thanks to the Lord tonight and this next week and always and for everything? Because if we know our God and if we have the eyes to see his works, then we will, we will see God's handiwork brilliantly displayed all around us. In the heavens above, in the oceans deep, in the mountains high, in our circumstances, in our lives, in our salvation, and how God is working in us and, and through us. Charles Spurgeon said, in design, in size, in number, in excellence, all the works of the Lord are great. Even the little things of God are great. You know, if we have the eyes to see them. Even the little things of God are great. In some point of view, or, or other, each one of the productions of his power or the deeds of his wisdom will appear to be great to the wise in heart. Even the little things of God are great. You know, what if we begin to take into account the little things of God? The little things of God in our lives? You know, the many little ordinary blessings from God to us. I mean, think about that for a moment. You know, what, what if we began to do that? What if we did that tonight? What if we did that this next week? I mean, how, how would that transform your, your Thanksgiving? I mean, how would that transform your Monday morning? Not just tomorrow, but, but every Monday morning. The Bible commentator Matthew Henry says, God's works are great like himself. There is nothing in them that is paltry or trifling. They are the products of infinite wisdom and power. You know, there are no trifling details in your life. Nothing is wasted. As Paul writes, it's right for us to give thanks always and for everything to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Look, look at verse 4. He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. You see what this verse says? That, that God wants you to remember. He wants you to remember his wondrous works of creation, his wondrous works of providence, his wondrous works of redemption in the world, throughout history, in your life. Do you realize that? I mean, stop, stop and think. How much do you have to remember? How much has God done for you? How much has God done for your redemption? See, the more we remember, the more we will see just how great God is. The more we remember all of what God has done in the world throughout the history of redemption in our lives, the more his greatness and his goodness and his mercy and his grace we make clear to us. And the more you'll be moved to wholehearted and grateful praise. The more we remember God's wondrous works in our lives and how sinful and undeserving we are, the more we will see that God is gracious and merciful to sinners like us. And thank God that he is. In the next few verses, the psalmist gives some more specific examples of God's works of provision and redemption throughout the history of redemption. So look at verse 5. He provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. 
So the food God provided for his people is is a reference to the manna from heaven which God provided for his people in the years of desert wandering during the exodus from Egypt to the promised land. And so why did God provide the food his people needed? Well, he remembers his covenant forever. Okay, well, what does that mean? Well, notice that covenant is singular. It doesn't say he remembers his covenants forever, but his covenant. He remembers his one covenant forever. And here that the psalmist is referring to the, 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 the covenant of grace. And listen, listen to how... Listen to how the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 7, speaks to us about God's covenant of works and the covenant of grace. It says, the first covenant made with man was a covenant of works, wherein life was promised to Adam and in him to his posterity upon condition of perfect and personal obedience. And the first Adam, he failed. But then we go on, it says, man by his fall, having made himself incapable of life by that covenant, the Lord was pleased to make a second, commonly called the covenant of grace, wherein he freely offered unto sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ, requiring of them faith in him that they may be saved, and promising to give unto all those that are ordained unto life his Holy Spirit, to make them willing and able to believe. This covenant, so this covenant, this covenant of grace, right, which, which began in Genesis 3.15 and uh, with the promise by God to send the Savior, the offspring of the woman who would one day uh, crush the serpent's head, that his heel would be bruised, but he would crush the serpent's head. This covenant of grace was differently administered in the time of the law and in the time of the gospel. Under the law, it was administered by promises, prophecies, sacrifices, circumcision, the paschal lamb, and other types and ordinances delivered to the people of the Jews, all for signifying Christ to come. Or as Jesus said on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. That everything written about me in the Old Testament scriptures must be fulfilled. So look again at verse 5, Psalm 111, verse 5. He provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. You see, just like a loving and faithful father keeps his promises and provides for his family, God is our perfect heavenly father, and he remembers his covenant promises to us forever. And so why, why give thanks to the Lord? Because he did not leave us under the covenant of works. He made the covenant of grace And in the fullness of time, he sent Christ to fulfill both the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. That you you can depend on your heavenly father. You can trust every one of his promises given to you in love. And look at verse 6. He has shown his people the power of his works in giving them the inheritance of the nations. And so again, God provided for his people and he kept his promise to, to give them their inheritance, the promised land of Canaan their inheritance of the nations. And we have been promised an inheritance. Right, listen to what Peter writes in 1 Peter 1, verses 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope 
through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. See, the inheritance that Peter speaks of, it's, it, it's, it's far superior to the inheritance of the promised land. I mean, think about it for a moment. As good as the land of Canaan was, it was at best a foretaste of this inheritance that Peter is speaking of. Right? The promised land produced rewards that, that did ultimately only perish and decay. And the land was spoiled and defiled by sin all throughout the history of the Old Testament. And the land did fade away, so to speak, as it was taken from the people by God during the exile because of their sin. However, the inheritance that accompanies our living hope that we've been born again to, into is, is so amazing that Peter's only able to describe it in terms of what it's not. You see, it's imperishable, it's undefiled, it's unfading. You know, why should you give thanks to the Lord tonight, tomorrow, this next week, and every day? Then your inheritance will never perish or decay. It will never spoil or be stained by sin. It will never fade away. It will never wither. It will never lose any of its beauty, any of its value. I mean, why give thanks to the Lord? He's promised us an inheritance. It's kept in heaven for us. It's reserved for us by God. You see, here in Psalm 111, we've seen the specific examples of God's faithfulness to his people and providing manna from heaven, this inheritance of the promised land. And then in verses 7 and 8, the, the psalmist takes us back to Mount Sinai and the giving of the law. And so look at verses 7 and 8. The works of his hand are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. That God's great works in redemptive history reflect his righteousness. And the same is true for God's law. God's law reflects his faithfulness, his justice, his trustworthiness, his uprightness. Put another way, God's law is given to us in love for our good. And, and the way that, that the theologians have understood God's law is really with three metaphors, three images. First, God's law is a mirror. It's a mirror, it's a path, and a fence. Okay, first it's a mirror. God's law is a mirror which graciously reveals to us our need for a Savior. When we stare into it, we see how we fall short and how we need the Savior who can perfectly fulfill the, the obligations of righteousness that we repeatedly fail. God's law is a path in which he graciously reveals to us how, how we ought to live, how we ought to walk, a path that leads to flourishing and leads to joy. God's law is also a fence which protects us from ruinous damage that, that sin always leads to. Right, sin, sin always leads to death. Sin always leads to ruin. Sin never ever makes things better. It never ultimately takes us where we want to go. It always costs way more than, than, than we bargained for. It's never worth it. Never makes things better. And thank God for his law. It was given to us in love for our good. And then we see in verse 9, he sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. Now, we've already discussed God's salvific covenant of grace, and, and from where we are in the history of redemption, we, we can't read this verse and not think of the redemption from sin that Jesus secured for us by his shed blood and death on the cross. And remember, right, as Luke 24 says, Jesus says that everything written 
in, in, about me and the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And so it's, it's right and proper for us to realize that Psalm 111 is ultimately about Christ. See, the entire Old Testament points forward to the Savior who was to come. The one promised in Genesis 3.15, the, the offspring of the woman who had redeemed God's elect by the, through the shedding of his own blood. You know, the entire Old Testament points forward to Christ. I mean, think of the Passover in the Exodus story when God delivered his people out of slavery in Egypt. The, the, the people of God were instructed to take a male lamb without blemish and sacrifice it and paint his blood on the doorpost of their home. And God's people were redeemed and, and set free from slavery in Egypt by the blood of the Passover lambs. And then later, the, the blood of sacrificial animals was continually offered on the altars in the tabernacle and in the temple. However, the blood of all those animals ultimately pointed forward to the Savior and Redeemer who was to come. As Hebrews 9 tells us, Christ entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of the fouled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And this is why Jesus introduced to us in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 29, as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And that Jesus said of himself in Matthew 26, 28, For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Or as Peter says in 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Or as John says in Revelation 1, 5, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. Or as we've seen in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood. And then in Ephesians 5, 2, we'll eventually get here where it says, And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. As our redemption, our redeemer. Do you know that you need a redeemer? See, a Christian is a sinner who has been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. What are you trusting in for your redemption? You know, many in this city, many in this city are trusting in themselves. They're trusting that as long as their good works outweigh their bad works, they'll be fine. That their good works will actually redeem their bad works. Their good works will, will somehow pay for their sin and their failures and their selfishness. Listen to how the preacher David Martin Lloyd-Jones put it. The cross of Christ is a standing condemnation of every view and philosophy which says that men and women, by their own efforts, can reconcile themselves to God or that they can atone for their sin. To all such views, the answer of the cross is that no one can do this. The cross is the proclamation of the insufficiency of mankind, and people dislike it because of that, for they believe in themselves and in their own power. You know, do you know that you need a, a redeemer? A Christian is a sinner 
who has been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. That Jesus is our Savior and Redeemer. He suffered the death we deserve in our place on our behalf to make atonement for our sins. He paid a debt that he did not owe to redeem us who owed a debt we could not pay. So why should we give thanks to the Lord? The simple answer is because of who God is and what he has done for us, what he has done for you as, as your creator, as your provider, as your redeemer. I mean, think about the, how the works of God are described in this psalm. All the words the psalmist uses to describe God's works also describe God himself. Think about that. Why should we give thanks to the Lord? And look back over Psalm 111. It's because he is great. And he's full of splendor. He's full of majesty. He is righteous and gracious and merciful and powerful and faithful and just and trustworthy and upright and holy and awesome is his name. And so how should we give thanks to the Lord? We should give thanks to the Lord along with his people in worship. And we should give thanks to the Lord with our whole hearts. Well, why? Why should we give thanks to the Lord? The simple answer is because of who God is and what he has done for us as creator, provider, and redeemer. Well, here's this last question. How are we to live tomorrow in light of all this? In light of who God is and what he has done for us? Well, the psalmist simply says that we should be wise. That we should be wise. Look at verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. So the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. See, I mean, that, that's really the, the theme of the Bible's you know, wisdom literature. See, without the fear of the Lord, then we will never truly be wise. That we'll never truly understand what life is really all about. That we'll never really truly understand how life works. Well, where does wisdom come from? Where do we find it? Well, it begins with the fear of the Lord. Which means it begins with reverence for God. Knowing that he's God and I'm not. Knowing that he's God and you are not. Remembering who he is and what he has done. And it continues with with learning and studying and knowing and seeking to obey God's word. Listen to how John Calvin comments on verse 10. He says, the conclusion of the psalm requires no explanation. Maybe that's for, maybe for John Calvin, but the conclusion of the psalm requires no explanation. Nothing is more profitable for God's people than to spend their lives in the celebration of the praises of God and remembering who God is and what he has done for you in his great works of creation, providence, and redemption. And as I said at the beginning of this sermon, I think it's fitting that we, we look at this psalm to prepare to come to this table as we prepare to enter this week of thanksgiving you know brothers and sisters we we have so much to be thankful for don't we we have so much to be thankful for tonight we have so much to be thankful for each and every time we prepare to come to this table amen amen let's let's go to lord in prayer
Father, it is, it is right that we give thanks always and for everything to you, God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Please hear our, our silent prayers now lifted up to you as we prepare our hearts to come to this table.